Hello, and welcome to Green Tea with D-Man, episode 1.9, Antonio Salazar, The Second World War. As German tanks rolled across Poland and Stuka dive bombers decimated Polish defenses, Antonio Salazar gave a speech to the National Assembly on the crisis of European civilization which had brought on the war. During the speech, he expressed his profound sympathy for the Polish nation, saying Portugal should pay homage to the heroic sacrifice and patriotism of the Polish people. The outbreak of hostilities was not much of a surprise, not least to Antonio Salazar, and his first action upon the news was to declare Portuguese neutrality and then work with the Italians and Spanish to ensure the war did not spread. By the end of 1939, Antonio Salazar was well aware how his old ally and proto-mentor Benito Mussolini had taken a turn for the worst in embracing the one-sided partnership with Adolf Hitler and the German Nazis. While his diplomatic efforts to convince Mussolini to stay neutral failed, Salazar was successful in getting through to Francisco Franco in Spain, though this was largely aided by the fact Spain was in no way, shape, or form strong enough to endure another armed conflict, as its destructive three-year civil war had just ended on April 1, 1939. Over the course of the Second World War, Antonio Salazar was seen, to put it politely, as being difficult for the Allies to deal with. One cannot blame Salazar for driving such a hard bargain during the war, as he was working to protect Portugal against belligerents, both Allied and Axis, as well as aiming to save European civilization from degeneracy and the Bolshevik hordes. If pursuing these goals meant ratcheting up prices for goods, such as Wolfram, then so be it. Ultimately, Salazar's view was that the military alliance with the British was of the utmost importance, and despite the Allies' deepest fear that Portugal would roll over to German requests to join the Axis, Salazar maintained a difficult position in keeping his ears and pocketbook open to the Axis powers, but keeping his hand firmly on the controls of a pro-British rudder. Salazar was curious as to German plans for replacing the British-led economic sphere in Europe with their own, and this curiosity only grew as first Poland, then Norway, the Low Countries, and finally France, fell to the German juggernaut. Aside from maintaining neutrality, Salazar pondered the question, what would a German-occupied Europe actually mean for Portugal? In his bid to shine some light on plans for a Nazi-dominated Europe, Antonio Salazar leaned on several individuals across the continent, as well as reports and speeches by German and Italian officials. Some of these reports and speeches came from officials such as German economic minister Walter Funk. In August 1940, Minister Funk was touring Western Europe giving speeches on the German economic policy for the new order in Europe. In one such speech in Paris, Portuguese officials noted that Funk called for an end to autarky and wished to see it replaced with a new and healthy division of labor. Two months later, the Italian exchange minister, Raffaello Riccardi, published a report calling for the extension of Axis solidarity across occupied Europe. In order to achieve this, Minister Riccardi suggested an economic hierarchy be established, which would determine access to raw materials. To Salazar, it was clear that Germany and Italy would occupy the top of the hierarchy with agricultural and resource-laden nations such as Portugal to provide the feed from below. As the calendar turned to 1941, Salazar requested a monthly assessment from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs regarding the state of occupied Europe and this new Axis order. Leaning on its officials across Europe, the ministry received reports that Germany was working on establishing an all-powerful syndicate 
that would be responsible for creating a new economic order supported by the establishment of an insurance syndicate to replace the Lloyds of London. In addition, it was to oversee operation of a central clearing in Berlin to regulate trade between neutral nations, and this last item was of immense interest to Salazar. Another source for filling in the gaps of this new world order came from German diplomat and a Reichstag member, Baron Werner von Rheinbaben, who just happened to be friends with Portuguese journalist and pseudo-diplomat Augusto de Castro. During a chat in May 1941, Rheinbaben informed Castro that Germany recognized and appreciated that Europe's strength lay in its plurality. He continued by saying there was no need for Germany to eliminate this European plurality, rather it would involve a reorientation towards a modality of common economic and social defense. Europe was to be made fully European, while Africa was to be wholly subordinate to Europe in every manner. Augusto de Castro continued to send notes to Salazar throughout the summer of 1941, as he took in lectures which Rheinbaben gave. By September 1941, Salazar felt he had gleaned enough information from his sources across Europe to form a picture that he was not supportive of. Germany's vision of a new European order dominated by itself was to have far-reaching and invasive effects on all other nations, effects which Salazar felt would be disastrous beyond the economic realm. In a letter to his good friend, Gonzague de Renault, on September 1, 1941, Salazar summed up his feelings by saying, Ignoring the fact that, beyond the economic organization or reordering of Europe, there are other factors of equal or higher value. Independence, national personality, culture, freedom, religion, and restricting ourselves to the economic camp, I'm very much afraid that this new Europe is simply the organized exploitation of the agricultural countries by the super-industrialized countries, in this case, principally, Germany. These feelings are representative, generally speaking, of the way many nationalist leaders in Europe felt about the struggle. Admiral Horthy in Hungary, Franco in Spain, Salazar in Portugal, and other nationalist leaders felt it was time to upend the materialism of the liberal capitalist system and replace it with an economic system that was more fair and balanced, with emphasis on the collaboration of the class hierarchy. There was also the outright hatred of Soviet communism, which had already attempted to subjugate Eastern Europe after the First World War. Salazar himself went fishing for information in April 1941, when he told Italian ambassador Renato Bovascapa that an Axis victory was the only way to save Europe from the Anglo-dominated capitalist system, which was stripping Europeans of their identities and replacing it with a slavish tendency towards greed and cruelty. Salazar had known in the mid-1930s that another war was coming, and when war started, he knew the final result would be an end to the European age. It wasn't that he was blaming just one side. Rather, he felt the Nazis were just as guilty as the British for destroying the European identity. When discussing the possibility of U.S. intervention with Ambassador Scopa, Salazar felt at best the U.S. could bring about a stalemate and that American involvement would be disastrous to Europe since the United States had a unique and completely unrelated history of expansion and economic development as compared to Europe. We will come back to the United States later in this episode as Salazar began to feel the diplomatic pinch over the Azores Islands. Interestingly, another source of information for Salazar was from an Axis nation on the front line in the war against the Soviets, that is Romania. The Romanian government, including Marshal Ion Antonescu, and especially its ambassador to Portugal, 
greatly valued Salazar's views on the war and what a post-war Europe would look like. On September 26, 1942, the Romanian ambassador and Salazar sat down to discuss war and peace. When asked by the ambassador on his view regarding an Axis victory, Salazar replied, I read and thought about the work which Mr. Antonescu had written and sent me on the building of the Roman Empire. I could not be convinced, however, that the construction which civilized Rome once made with the barbarians it civilized could be repeated with the already civilized nations of Europe, unless we all considered ourselves to be barbarians in the face of Germany, as Iberians and Franks had done in the face of Rome. Germany has a taste for force, for material and external order, has an obsession with systems. How shall such a spirit operate in the reorganization of Europe? Should it be dealt with in a sovereign way by Germanic might? Little did Salazar or the Romanian ambassador know, but in just two months, the Soviets would launch a massive counterattack at Stalingrad that would see half of the Romanian army destroyed and effectively neutered for the remainder of the war. In July 1943, Salazar received word from the ambassador that the government in Bucharest now understood there was to be no Axis victory. Wars produce destruction and dislocation of peoples, and titanic struggles such as a world war do so on a monumental scale. As Germany swept through Europe, their victories and genocidal policies led to a mass movement of refugees. With Central Europe under German control and the East divided between Axis and Communist, most refugees fled west, leading them to the United Kingdom prior to the fall of France, and diverted to the French-Spanish border starting in May 1940. Eventually, over 100,000 refugees would traverse Portugal on their way to North America and South America, and away from the war itself. Many of these refugees came through in the summer of 1940, and a good portion of those owed their eventual safety to a stubborn Portuguese diplomat named Aristide Souza Mendes. As we know, Portugal was a poor country and had enough issue feeding itself, especially during World War II, that to take on thousands of refugees would create conditions for catastrophe. Salazar was intent on building up the Portuguese within Portugal and its empire, and he had no intention of taking on immigrants, which would eventually mean competition for the domestic workforce and a scarcity of food. With that said, there's been a lot of false information put out by academia and journalists in the West for the last several decades to include NPR, National Public Radio, here in the U.S., which ran a story about Aristide Souza Mendes and accused Salazar, erroneously, of having a total ban on Jews, Russians, and stateless persons from being allowed in the country. This is total garbage and an outright lie. There was no such ban against Jews or any specific ethnic group. As I said a minute ago, Salazar ended up letting over 100,000 refugees into the country, so the continued hit piece against him by outlets such as NPR is intellectually dishonest and shameful. Starting in January 1940, Souza Mendes, who was stationed at the Portuguese consul in Bordeaux, France, had started issuing a few visas here and there to influential and wealthy persons who knew what lay on the horizon with the German invasion. Once the Germans swept through France and the Low Countries, the amount of refugees skyrocketed and led Souza Mendes to a heroic decision on June 17th. He would issue free Portuguese visas to all refugees who requested them. After about 20,000 refugees gained passage thanks to Souza Mendes, 
The foreign ministry in Lisbon, under intense pressure from Spain, who had tens of thousands of refugees now streaming through its country en route to Portugal, told Sousa Mendes to stand down and abide by Lisbon's regulations on which foreigners could be granted a visa, namely, those with family or business ties to Portugal. Sousa Mendes refused to cease issuance of visas, and it took Lisbon sending Pedro Pereira to Bordeaux in order to cease the activity and have Sousa Mendes brought back to Lisbon. Salazar ordered an investigation into Sousa Mendes's actions, and evidence came back that while issuing visas, he had actually collected a special tax from desperate refugees. Coupled with an investigation into his activities way back from 1930, when he failed to forward on to Lisbon funds from his post as consul in Amsterdam, evidence mounted that the accusations were probably true. It didn't help that he had 14 children, which convinced many that his family budget must have been so high as to require bribery to maintain. There's no doubt that Sousa Mendes made an admirable decision in issuing visas to many people, including many Jews, who probably would not have survived the war had they fallen into the hands of advancing German forces. However, there's another angle with which this must be seen, as to understand why Salazar decided to sack Sousa Mendes following the investigation. We've talked about the diplomatic balancing act Salazar performed, but we haven't really gotten into the meaty details yet. This situation is just one of many because from Salazar's perspective, there was a real risk in antagonizing the Germans into offensive operations against Portugal due to the actions taken by renegade diplomats, such as Sousa Mendes, and it was because of situations like this one that Salazar took over as foreign minister and demanded that all diplomatic activities first go through him. Included in the batch of refugees who made it to Portugal thanks to Sousa Mendes were some influential politicians from the Low Countries, which the Germans would have rather wanted in their custody, as opposed to allowing them to set up a beacon of dissent outside of occupied Europe. Salazar's sacking of Sousa Mendes was deemed barbaric by the West, and was really the match that lit this continuing flame of lies about Salazar's views on the refugee situation during World War II. In fact, it was Antonio Salazar himself that worked through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1944 to save Hungarian Jews. In June 1944, the head of the Portuguese legation in Budapest, Carlos Garrido, stepped in to rescue his Jewish secretary and her family when extremists in the Hungarian Arrow Cross Party, with support from Nazi occupation forces, attempted to send them off to a concentration camp. In exchange for this minister, Garrido left Budapest and accompanied his secretary and her family back to Portugal. Garrido's successor, Alberto Braquinho, decided to seek Salazar's approval in issuing Portuguese visas to as many Jews as possible within the broadest legal boundary. Working with the foreign ministry and Salazar's blessing, Minister Branquinho ended up issuing visas and protection documents to over 1,000 Hungarians, most of whom had some tangential family or business relationship with either Brazil or Portugal. The National Socialist elements within the Arrow Cross had originally only permitted 500 such visas, but the Portuguese government issued 698 while extending protection documents to another 300-plus Jews stuck in the labor division around Budapest. The only condition the Portuguese put on the visas and protection documents was that these Hungarian citizens were not permitted to immigrate to Portugal. The downside to all of this was that the roaming gangs of national socialists in Budapest 
began priority targeting of Jews who had protection documents from neutral countries such as Portugal, Sweden, and Switzerland. Now we're going to change gears and look at the threats Portugal faced during World War II, because while Salazar kept her neutral, Portugal didn't make it through the conflict without taking quite a few hits. There were three Portuguese provinces that felt direct impacts during the war, Macau and Timor in Asia, and the Azores in the Atlantic. Macau is a group of islands in the Pearl River Delta, and opposite of Hong Kong. In 1937, when the Japanese expanded their incursions into China, Macau was nearing its 400th year as a Portuguese trading center. As Japanese troops pushed deeper into China, Macau found itself inundated with Chinese refugees fleeing the war. Now, the pre-war population was around 180,000, yet the influx of Chinese refugees sent the colony's population skyrocketing to between 500 and 700,000, which caused the food distribution system to completely collapse. Starvation became so widespread that reports indicated some refugees had resorted to cannibalism. Despite the Japanese invasion of Hong Kong right next door in December 1941, Macau was left alone by the Japanese for the next 18 months. However, that changed when in August 1943, the Japanese dispatched troops to capture a British merchant vessel. When Macanese policemen fired on the Japanese, a brief battle took place, resulting in a Japanese victory. In September, the Japanese demanded that Macau allow Japanese officials into its administration, and with no other option, the Portuguese colonial government acquiesced. For the remainder of the war, Macau was more or less a Japanese puppet, which put it in the crosshairs of the Allies, specifically the Americans, who would go on to bomb Macau three times before the war ended, resulting in the deaths of Chinese and Portuguese in the colony. Eventually, in 1950, the American government agreed to compensate the Portuguese government for the attacks. Now, Portuguese Timor would suffer a worse fate than Macau. The island of Timor sits northwest of Darwin, Australia, across the Timor Sea. Today, it is split between the independent country of Timor-Leste and the Indonesian western part. In 1942, the Dutch owned the western part and Portugal owned the eastern part. With the Japanese attacks across the Pacific on and after December 7, 1941, the Allies realized that control of Timor would allow the Japanese air bases and supply points from which to then attack Australia. Due to this concern, the Allies pressured Portugal, insisting on the allowance of a joint Australian-Dutch expedition to take up defensive positions in Portuguese Timor. Salazar, realizing that any Allied presence would magnify the risk to Portugal's possessions abroad, worked out an agreement, whereby the Allies were only permitted to land troops on the Portuguese side of the island if the Japanese first attacked it. However, when Japanese submarines were spotted in the Timor Sea in mid-December, the Allies panicked and a 350-man expedition was sent to Dili, the capital. Although Antonio Salazar had given instructions to the governor not to allow an Allied landing, there was nothing the Portuguese could do. With the Allied presence confirmed in Portuguese Timor, the Japanese raised the alarm in Lisbon, indicating that the presence of Australian and Dutch troops on the Portuguese half of the island was unacceptable. Salazar took the National Assembly, speaking of the betrayal by the Allies and how, despite having an agreement in place, the British-led alliance had selfishly put Portugal at risk of being dragged into the World War. Salazar had every right to be furious, but realistically, the Japanese were never going to respect Portuguese neutrality on Timor, 
considering its immense strategic value sitting so close to Australia. Between December to January, Salazar worked out a new agreement where Portuguese troops were dispatched from Mozambique, and once they arrived in Dili, the Dutch and Australian contingent would evacuate. Unfortunately for Portuguese Timor, the Japanese invaded on February 19, 1942, before Portuguese troops could arrive to replace the Allied forces. As a result of the Japanese attack, the Australian and Dutch forces retreated to defensive positions in the hills and the jungle of the island, where they and Portuguese and Timorese guerrillas frustrated Japanese efforts to pacify the island. Allied commandos held out for a year before evacuating and leaving the Timorese inhabitants to vicious reprisals at the hands of the Japanese occupation forces. Over the next two years, some 50,000 Portuguese and Timorese died under the Japanese occupation before finally on September 5, 1945, the Japanese commanding officer turned over authority of Dili and the Portuguese half to Governor Calvao. Three weeks later, on September 27th, a Portuguese force of 2,000 men landed in Dili to reassert government control and begin the massive rebuilding process. The last Portuguese possession for us to cover, which saw meaningful action in World War II, despite the nation's neutrality, was the Azores archipelago, and one look at a Google map makes it clear why. The Azores are located about 1,000 miles west of Portugal, roughly 1,300 miles southwest of the United Kingdom, and smack dab in the Atlantic Ocean. This, of course, made it highly valuable real estate during World War II, as it proved vital in providing a fuel depot, as well as a naval and air base, allowing Allied planes to fly anti-submarine operations in support for their convoys. How it came to be that the Allies were given access to use the Azores was a diplomatic headache for Salazar, Churchill, and Roosevelt, and several times during negotiations, it nearly pushed the Portuguese into the war thanks to direct threats from a gung-ho Republican senator from Florida and impatience by the Allies in general. After the fall of France, Hitler wanted to use the Azores as a base from which to attack Allied shipping. Fortunately for Salazar and the Allies, Germany's top naval officials deemed any operation to capture and then fortify the Azores as simply too expensive and difficult to pull off. Instead, they wanted to focus resources on readying French ports for full-scale submarine operations. While Salazar never had much concern over a German operation to take the islands, Winston Churchill actually put forth a desire to occupy the Azores and Cape Verde in 1940 under the assumption Portugal would be unwilling or unable to defend them from German aggression. This concern of German moves was heightened when Hitler began negotiating possible use of Dakar and Senegal for German operations against the Allies. This led to frantic exchanges between Washington and London about how best to proceed. President Roosevelt largely respected the Portuguese standing and the accepted policy line was that the Allies would only occupy the Azores if Germany made a move against Portugal, but this is where it began to break down. While Salazar had already negotiated a plan with the British, wherein a German invasion would prompt the Estado Novo to offer up a guerrilla resistance while moving the government to the Azores, the Allies and Salazar couldn't agree on what would constitute a German move against Portugal. Did it mean German forces crossing the Pyrenees into Spain? Or is it more explicit, such as a German operation to capture the Azores? The issue was largely settled during the Atlantic Charter between Roosevelt and Churchill in August 1941, 
When there was agreement, the Americans would be the ones to provide forces for the defense of the Azores if Germany moved against them, albeit behind the British diplomatic face with Salazar. The issue largely died during the next year, but by early 1943, British Admiral Sir Dudley Pound suggested that the government negotiate with Salazar over leasing some facilities in the Azores. In the Admiral's view, a simple presence to allow air coverage for convoys crossing the Atlantic would cut down on the length of time, and danger to, Allied convoys which were stuck taking an icy northerly route from America to Britain. An added element to Admiral Pound's suggestion was that in 1942, the Germans had begun refueling operations for their submarines, and it just happened that these rendezvous occurred near the Azores. An Allied presence there was needed more than ever, even if Germany was in no shape to attack Spain and Portugal. In February 1943, President Roosevelt, growing impatient with Salazar, recommended to the Brazilian government that its forces could move to occupy the Azores, thereby making the idea more amenable to Salazar. The British Foreign Office, especially Anthony Eden, were unhappy to hear the Americans proposing such an idea, and instead they offered to approach Salazar with what they hoped was an offer he would not refuse, invoking the old alliance between the two nations in order to allow Allied use of the islands. The next few months were largely a diplomatic tango, as Salazar wanted to make absolutely certain a British presence would be small and would not lead to a German declaration of war. At the same time, the British were spread too thin, and felt that the Americans were best suited to lead the effort on the islands, while the Americans were impatient and wanted to just get it over with so they could amass logistical resources on the islands. Eventually, the agreement was signed on August 18, 1943 and British forces landed that very same day. Over the next year and a half until the end of the war, the British and Americans continued to go back and forth with Salazar over use of the islands and the size of the Allied presence. At the end of the day, Salazar maintained his primary concern was that allowing the Americans to use facilities in the Azores would have violated Portugal's neutrality. But since the British had invoked the historical alliance, Salazar had legal standing to remain neutral whilst providing assistance to the British. Interestingly, the several books I used as sources for this series on Salazar devote entire chapters just to the Azores, but I felt in the grand scheme of things, this was just a moderate part of the overall picture, and as such, I reduced it to about a thousand words in this episode. For anyone interested in the lengthy diplomatic struggle between the Allies and Salazar over the Azores, there are several books out there to shed more light on the topic. In the meantime, we're going to move on. As I have mentioned several times before in this podcast, Antonio Salazar pulled off an amazing feat in safeguarding Portugal's neutrality against both Axis and Allied designs. Despite diplomatic pressure, such as that faced regarding the Azores and Portuguese Timor, Salazar managed to keep Portugal with eyes forward and a stable sense of being. However, it wasn't just diplomatic engagements that Salazar had to contend with, but also those of a more covert nature involving the intelligence and propaganda operations, mostly from Germany and Britain. Due to the long-standing relationship between the United Kingdom and Portugal, British intelligence networks such as those run by MI6 were already established by the time World War II kicked off. However, Germany didn't start building its networks until the late 1930s, more specifically as the Spanish Civil War escalated and Berlin saw how useful neighboring Portugal could be in its efforts to help Franco and the Nationalists in defeating the Republicans. 
1937, the PVDE and Italians had signed an agreement to provide training for PVDE agents and to reform Portugal's police efforts, which by April 1940 would lead to a technical accord between the two nations. Between 1940 to 1943, the Germans saw several operational successes in Portugal to go along with their ones that were occurring on the battlefields of Europe. Several of these included the penetration of various government departments within the Estado Novo by placement of German-paid civil servants or bribes of civil servants, placement of German-paid spies in Portugal's Foreign Affairs Ministry, as well as the bugging of telephones within the Foreign Affairs Ministry. There were also rumors that the Germans had managed to bug Antonio Salazar's phone, though there is little concrete evidence of this actually having occurred. Lastly, and what would prove to be most controversially, is that the Germans successfully established spy rings among the harbor workers in Lisbon and some officials in the Civil Aeronautics Agency. This allowed the Germans to place the Portuguese spies on ships and planes heading to and from allied nations such as the UK and the US. It also allowed them to gather intelligence from flight manifests, and it was this item which led to the tragedy of British Overseas Airways Corporation Flight 777-A on June 1, 1943. A Portuguese spy based within the Civil Aeronautics Agency tipped off the Germans that several high-ranking British secret agents and the executive of a Jewish refugee organization were on board the plane. As the plane made its way from the Iberian Peninsula and into the Bay of Biscay, it was engaged and shot down by eight German Junkers Ju-88 aircraft. Much to the dismay of movie lovers the world over, one of the other passengers on board the flight was actually a film star, Leslie Howard. Several theories abound as to why exactly the Germans targeted this civilian flight. Perhaps the most popular is that German spies believed they had seen British Prime Minister Winston Churchill boarding the plane on the tarmac in Lisbon and thus seeing a golden opportunity to assassinate the old bulldog. The Germans rolled the dice and ordered the plane shot down. After the war, German pilots who took part in the operation swore that it was a case of mistaken identity and that they had not received orders to intentionally shoot down the plane. However, reports indicated that this same plane had been targeted twice before, once in November 1942 and again in April 1943, thus throwing cold water on the German pilot's claim. Whatever the reason the plane was downed, it would mark a turning point in the intelligence and propaganda battle, though it was not the deciding factor in the shift. Caught in between the two competing powers was the PVDE, which largely acted as a neutral umpire during the war with two phases. The first phase, covering 1939 to 1942, was a cautious approach, which in some instances seemed to slightly favor the Axis. The second phase covered 1943 to 1945, as it became clear that the Axis would lose the war, thus allowing neutral Portugal to take a deep breath and clamp down more on German intelligence and propaganda operations. Surprisingly, espionage in Portugal was not considered a crime until June 7, 1943, when the Estado Novo published a decree law making it so, no matter if it was foreigners or Portuguese carrying out the espionage. Of course, the agency placed in charge of suppressing and monitoring espionage was the PVDE. Overall, between 1940 to 1945, the PVDE deported or expelled six Allied intelligence agents and 16 Axis agents. 
However, towards the end of 1941, one of the largest spy rings assembled by either side during the war was detected and smashed by the PVDE, which resulted in nearly 100 Portuguese being arrested or expelled from the country. This ring was set up by the British SOE, Special Operations Executive, and had as its mission the establishment of a resistance force in the event a German invasion occurred. What is probably the biggest issue with this spy ring was not necessarily that it was being organized by the British, but rather who its leaders were, and those were longtime oppositionists to the Estado Novo. In addition to the war of espionage occurring in Portugal, mainly Lisbon, Antonio Salazar also had to contend with the propaganda machines of the British and Germans. While the British were busy rallying monarchists and democratic dissenters with aged ties to the sacred alliance in order to garner support for the Allied cause, the Germans focused on the young officers in the Portuguese military by showing them film reels of German victories across Europe and publishing pamphlets highlighting the strong sense of order found in the Nazi Reich. During the war, there was an instance where the German legation was caught printing anti-Semitic pamphlets that derided the British, and as a result, the PVDE stepped in and shut down the operation, while also fining the printing company and destroying all copies of the pamphlet that they could get a hold of. Unfortunately for the Asado Novo and its Portuguese supporters, everyone from the Allies to the Axis to the Communists had more coherent and effective propaganda operations than did the new state. While Antonio Salazar scored the occasional propaganda victory, such as winning the admiration and lifelong support of British Colonel F.C.C. Egerton, the Saudo Novo struggled mightily to shape, let alone control, public opinion, which would lead to high anxiety for the regime during the elections in the late 1940s. We will cover Salazar's methods to control public opinion during the later part of the war in our next episode. In the meantime, let's talk about tungsten. Tungsten, also known as Wolfram, is a vital resource in the production of armaments, such as bullets and shells. In 1938, as Europe went to war, the leading producer of tungsten on the continent was actually Portugal, producing 3,000 tons per year out of a total global production rate of about 37,000 tons. This made them a prime trade target for any nation looking to ramp up arms production, namely the British and Germans. As we have seen before, the British had a built-in advantage for many points of contention between the Allies and the Nazis when it came to Portugal, and Tungsten was yet another where Britain held the upper hand through its ownership of the majority of mines in Portugal. However, partly out of fearing Nazi aggression and partly out of opportunity, Antonio Salazar leveraged his nation's abundance of tungsten to gain favorable trade terms with the Third Reich which saw an exchange of tungsten for industrial goods, such as arms, machinery, and medicine. By 1943, the Allies had decided they needed to curtail German acquisition of tungsten and began buying up the surplus from Portuguese mines, which ended up driving prices through the roof to nearly 7,500 pounds sterling per ton. On top of purchasing the surplus tungsten, the Allies also put immense pressure on Salazar to shut down German mining operations and to halt sales of the resource to Hitler. In late 1941, Antonio Salazar established the Regulatory Commission for the Commercialization of Metals in a bid to stabilize prices, provide employment for local Portuguese, and to ensure his leverage in negotiating better trade deals. This commission required all mines in the country, including those owned by Britain, France, and Germany, to sell the tungsten they produced to the Portuguese state who would then divvy up the resource in an equal share to the belligerent nations. 
While the Allies felt cheated in this deal, they understood Salazar's predicament and his fear of Nazi aggression, especially considering that German U-boats had already sank three Portuguese vessels by this point in the war. As 1944 dawned, the Allies ramped up the pressure to include formal complaints from Brazil and South Africa, along with the British and Americans demanding that Salazar eliminate tungsten sales to the Third Reich. The Brazilians actually infuriated Salazar by claiming that Portugal had a hand in the death of Brazilian soldiers due to Portuguese tungsten supplying German weapons. Finally, on June 5, 1944, Antonio Salazar caved to world pressure, and he shut down mining operations in the country. While this decision gained some favor with the Allies, it came at the cost of putting 100,000 Portuguese laborers out of work and cutting off £2 million sterling of income from the Portuguese treasury. In 1939, several nations in Europe, to include Portugal under Antonio Salazar, had shown a positive interest in the possibility of a change in the world's balance of power, a change away from the failures of capitalism and mob rule democracy, and one towards unity and the harnessing of an industrious people, eliminating class conflict and building a new world. Unfortunately for these nationalists and fascists, the stain and horrors of National Socialism, Nazism, led by Adolf Hitler, had destroyed all semblance of the good done by this movement, and by mid-1945, Antonio Salazar found himself smashed between a new dominant power of the United States, leading the Western Liberal Capitalist Alliance, and that of the Soviet Union, leading the Communists. Salazar was forced to pick the lesser of two evils, but as we have seen so far, this academic from a small village in Portugal was not one to let bullies push him and his nation around, and despite working with the West against communism, Salazar would continue hacking through the wilderness to forge Portugal's own path in the post-war New World Order. In the next episode, we will look at the changes occurring in the world following the defeat of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, and show how these changes affected Antonio Salazar and the Estado Novo. Along with pressure to democratize his nation, Salazar also had to contend with real and formidable internal challenges to his rule. Despite being one of the two odd men out in Europe following World War II, the other being Francisco Franco, Salazar would prove instrumental in the establishment of organizations such as NATO and an economic community in Europe. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Green Tea with D-Man.